Please do take a seat and pick up uh, your pew Bibles or your own Bible or phone or whatever and let's have a look at Colossians chapter 1 together. Paul and and Timothy, who co-authored this book, uh, say a lot packed into this one section today. It's really summarizing everything that the whole letter is about and it's useful to see it. Last week we started to look at a church that grows up, and we heard that we've been qualified, delivered, transferred, redeemed, and forgiven, and so we are no longer who we were before. We have a new identity, a new ID in Christ Jesus, and nonetheless, there is a question that many of us ask one another when we meet new people. We often say something like this, what do you do? What do you do? The answer to that question reveals a lot. We say, I am a teacher, or I am a doctor, and we talk about work. Or we say, I'm a hockey mom, or Pittsburgh dad. And uh, we talk about families and hobbies and the city that we're from. Many of us, when we're asked this question, what do you do, answer with an identity-level statement that reveals we get our identity from the things around us. But Paul and and Timothy, co-writing this letter, say that if you are in Christ Jesus, then a new and even greater identity has been proclaimed over them all, above and over everything, even over your old identity in sin. Formerly, you were characterized, if by anything, by sin. You were trapped in sin, but your ID has now changed so much so that sinners may now be known as saints. It's all by Christ Jesus, by whom and in whom and for whom we have a new ID. And this explains what we looked at last week, why as we get to verse 15 this morning, it's all so Christian, so Christological, Christ-focused. Many scholars believe that uh, these next verses, the six verses that we look at today, are poetic in genre, perhaps uh, even a bit like a hymn or a song, they say. Uh, and they say that it is perhaps uh, the, the, the most important Christological poem in the whole canon of Scripture, the only other competitor for that accolade being the prologue of John's Gospel that we heard read just a few moments ago. They say very similar things. It should give us confidence when we find different authors at different times saying very similar things. When they're poetical and and complicated and pack a lot into a few words, the nuances of Scripture that we see unfold before us this morning should give us real confidence in the authenticity and the power of the Word of God. Uh, We should be overawed by it. And if you have Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 open in front of you, you'll see that the poem or the hymn or the song or whatever, it keeps repeating itself, keeps alternating uh, between who he is and what he does. Who is Jesus? Well, Paul sings, he is the image of God, he is eternal, he is preeminent. What does he do? He creates, he sustains, and he heads, and he dies, and he lives, and he reconciles. Uh, It's almost like a double helix, two spirals wound around each other. Who he is and what he does and who he is and what he does. And around and around it goes. Why do this? Why write 
in such a very deliberate, meticulous, theological, rhetorical, lyrical, poetical, tangled skein of a style in the midst of a letter. Why do it? Why, 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 why break from a coherent set of statements and propositions into song? We don't normally do this. We don't normally burst into song when we're trying to say something, do we? Except for in musicals. I'm going to be really honest with you. Don't judge me, all right, for what I'm about to say, because we're Christians. If you want judgment, go to the mosque, all right? I don't like musicals. I hate them. I cannot stand musicals. I I want to throw up on the floor whenever I hear one. Um, I know, objectively speaking, that makes me a bad human. And you're all now, I can't sit under this guy's authority anymore. You know, you're probably thinking I need a new church. Um, I hate musicals, I'm being honest with you. Uh, what I hate amongst many things in musicals is you're just getting into the play, because it should be a play, because that's what people go to. Uh, and just as you're getting into the plot of the play and really being caught up in all of the drama and forgetting yourself and being drawn in, someone wistfully and moonfully looks out of a window and the, the, the music comes up and they start singing another dreadful song about dinner or cleaning the floor or the dog has died or some other dreadful mundane thing. Notable exceptions. Uh, I would say that Mark Fire was absolutely amazing in The Music Man uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, still a dreadful musical, but he really carried that thing. He's brilliant. Um, I'd also say uh, that you have not lived... Unless and until you have seen the musical version of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's brilliant. But why do this? Why take a coherent set of propositions and a point and a letter that is just ticking along nicely and then suddenly burst into song in the middle of it? The most plausible answer is because it's calculated to grab your attention. It's designed, I think, this radical shift in genre to make you look up. It's designed to get your attention, and the repetition, of course, is designed to get in your head and stay there. I've got a theory. It could be Barney's. That's Buffy the musical for you. Thanks, church. Thanks so much. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, sings Paul. It's like the refrain in a musical. He'll keep coming back to it. He'll take this refrain, this motif, and he'll just keep playing with it and twisting it and coming. Musicals are actually really good, aren't they? the more I think about it, actually. don't like them, but they're really clever. Um, You can look at Jesus, says Paul in verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God. You can look at Jesus and you can see God. When you look at Jesus, you see God. To look across at Jesus is to look up. It's something that captivates and draws you into the presence of God just looking at him alone. In John's prologue, he says, No one has ever seen God, but God, the only Son, has made him known, John 1.18. Jesus is the revealedness of God, wrote Karl Barth in his 13-volume book of church dogmatics. Brilliant idea, the revealedness of God, the thinginess of, of God, said Archbishop Rowan Williams. Jesus is... is 
is the, the thing that you look at and you see God because he is God. He is, uh, it says here in Colossians, the firstborn of all creation. Around the, the sort of spiral we go. It doesn't mean that he was created. It speaks more of his importance and more of his role, I think. Uh, the firstborn was a phrase that was used in the Old Testament of Israel. It was the phrase that we mentioned in Psalm 89 when we prayed the psalm together a few moments ago. The promised Messiah, the descendant of David, was the firstborn. The firstborn is a phrase that is all to do with the rights and identity that uh, someone had, the heir to the throne, the title, the land, the throne. The firstborn would inherit all things. It's telling us, Colossians 1.15, that Jesus is God. This world is his. For by him, verse 16, all things were created. He is not created he is the creator. He makes everything. In fact, in, in the Greek, in the original language, what it says is uh, that uh, for in him the all things were created. There's an article there, a the, even more emphatic, emphatically total, the all things. Everything, the whole universe was created by Christ Jesus. This is his universe. Once more with feeling, Buffy the Vampire Slayer musical, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. I've got an idea, I've got a story. It's a musical, it's repetitive. Uh, Think back to our Daniel series. And we looked at this uh, as one of our readings during Daniel. We're being told that there are powers out there behind the powers that you can see, and yet Jesus is Lord over them all. Great celestial bodies that are physical but mind-bendingly far away in the yawning blankness of space, bursting with light. And demonic powers that are spiritual in nature but alarmingly proximate and shrouded in darkness. All are under the lordship of Christ. Over all it is, seen and unseen, we say in the creed, Jesus is Lord. Now, he did not make evil, but he made things that became evil. And the point is that if he can make them, then he can break them. There is no power, there's no entity, there's no situation beyond the supremacy of Christ, says Paul or sings Paul. So therefore, I want to say to you that whatever you may be facing into in 2019, and maybe it's the emotional or the spiritual trauma of 2018 that you are now unpacking. Or maybe it's a fear of something you find looming in 2020. Whatever 2019 is about, there is no situation beyond the power and supremacy of Christ Jesus. And we know that in verse 17, in him, all things hold together. If you feel right now like your life is falling apart, it's good to know that in Christ Jesus it is upheld. Hebrews chapter 1. It almost functions like a commentary on this section. It says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, who he is, one of the spirals, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, what he does. Who he is and what he does are intimately bound up one with the other. Creation 
is, is constituted or consists or stands together in him. He's like the foundation of a building, Paul implies later on in this letter, like the roots of a tree. Uh, both images in Colossians about Christ's ability to hold up that which is built upon him or grows up in him. Without him, you're like a building with no foundation, like a tree with no roots, and you will fall over. Quantum physicists say, apparently, that uh, electrons can exist in more than one place at one time. And that subatomically, one particle can travel to one place by two different routes at the same time. And they posit the thesis that if this is what happens at a, a micro level, at a subatomic level, then maybe in the same way at a macro level, at the level we can see, all the matter and material in this room could, if it wanted to, suddenly all rush into that corner and form a black hole. A singularity. We could all be sucked in to it. And uh, I think that if Paul and his brother Timothy were to be reading Professor Stephen Hawking and, and hear something like that, they would go, well, yeah, tell us something we don't know. Of course that's true. They're telling us that, that all of those laws of nature and those laws of physics only exist and only stay existing in any form that makes any sense, in any form that is, is, is coherent or predictable, because he that made them also sustains them. Christ Jesus is the one who makes and sustains, upholds all things. So let us say that you are at that party, and someone does say, what do you do? And you do answer with an ID-level answer from something around you. And you say, well, uh, this is my job, or this is where I live. And we get our ID from something instead of Christ. Let's say you do answer by referencing your wealth, or your job, or your qualifications, or your home, or your family, or your city. What good, let me ask you, would any of that be if God were to remove, let's say, one element from the periodic table. Let's just say the Trinity gets bored with carbon. How would that be? Not very good, would it? What if God said, we don't need gravity anymore, or entropy, or the law of thermodynamics? Would it be worth putting your trust in a house that was anchored to nothing? I don't think so. We place our trust in the wrong thing, when we place our trust and even our identity in the created and not the creator who makes and indeed sustains all things. Because what he creates, he can uncreate. It really is like the refrain from a musical, isn't it? Going round and round and round, this idea. And I've heard that song before someplace, that, that tune. I've heard it before and it, it, it gets in your head. Is my slayer too far gone to care? Sings Giles in Buffy. Uh, the Vampire Slayer musical. Do watch it, it's wonderful. To coin a musical phrase, what if God said, let's just let it go? How many of us have had to listen to that dreadful musical over and over and over in car journeys? Let it go. There's another verse here, all about the enormity of what God does in creation and then in upholding his creation. And it's all about the identity of Christ Jesus. Everything in this hymn has all been about the identity of Jesus. 
And now, like any good musical, it takes that thing that we've learned. We've learned the tune. We've learned how it works. We get the genre. We understand where this is going. And it takes all that we've just heard about the identity of Christ Jesus and applies it now to something new, to our identity in Christ Jesus. He, verse 18, is the head of the body, the church. And this means that we are attached to him. We are led by him. We are characterized and nourished by him. It means that when God looks at you, he sees the face of his son. Just as when we look at Christ, Jesus, the son, we see the face of the father. When the father looks at us, he sees the face of the son. Let me put it another way. If God had an iPhone X, with facial recognition software built into the operating system, we could look at the father's iPhone and our face would unlock it. So strongly profound is our new identity in Christ Jesus that we have access to everything that God has to provide. Indeed, our identity is so radically new and so real that our identity is God's identity. That is the power that Christ has to create the all things and to recreate just a few of those who are in him. He is, verse 18, the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. Fascinating. Paul suddenly starts talking about death as a beginning. Death becomes a creation-level event in verse 18. He now describes Christ's victory over death in the same way that, that God created the world. It's a new beginning. As, as he emerges from the grave, verse 18 says, it was that, or in the Greek a special word, it means so that, or in order that. The next point is contingent upon the one before it, like a musical. In everything, he may be preeminent. It was by design that he may hold the supreme place, the first place, the point of the cross. And the point of the resurrection was that in order that God might prove something and start something new, and that in everything, even over the strongest of enemies, he might demonstrate that he is is yet Lord even over death. Only God could create something new out of something dead. How does he do it? For, because, verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell getting clearer now, getting sharper now as we get used to how this works. It was God on the cross, it was God in the grave, and it was God emerging from that thing alive, and he was pleased with this plan. God, the Holy Trinity, thought it was a good idea. Someone from the Adult Forum uh, Bible class last week quoted a minister asking an important question in his church, and Uh, The the minister said, hands up, show of hands. Who of you here thinks that God is pleased with you? Who of you thinks God is pleased with you? And apparently in this guy's church, only one person raised their hand. One child tentatively raised his hand and said, I think God might be pleased with me. The child was correct. God is pleased with you. He's very pleased. Verse 10 says you are now fully pleasing. Verse 19 says that God was pleased to dwell with you. Just as he was well pleased in his son, because now we have the identity of the son, he is well pleased in you. God is pleased with you. 
He's every bit as pleased with you as he is with himself because you have his identity. He's made you pleasing. He's remade you pleasing like him. The word dwelling here, like the word fullness, is language that's very reminiscent of Old Testament language to do with with the presence of God, you know, the tent of the meeting place, the dwelling of God and the fullness of God. In the New Testament, it's a contraction of two Greek words, kata and oikeo. Oikeo uh, uh, means, means to live, and oikos was a house. It's telling us that God made a house here. He moved in with us. Happily. And kata preposition doesn't really mean in, it means down. God moved down with us so that we might be on a level with him and then be lifted up. It's a profound statement that he is making here. Verse 20 says he starts making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, it's extraordinary to start talking about peace and blood and cross and crucifixion in the same sentence. But there are, of course, two radically different perspectives on the subject of peace. There's the perspective of the peaceful people who are brought in and are now at peace. There is also the perspective of the unpeaceful people who are cast out and got rid of so that we can all have a good time. Uh, and there is an audio tape of a family baptism uh, that I was at when I was about three that neatly um, illustrates this point. It was old, old days. We didn't video everything like we do today and put it on Instagram. Someone lugged a whole tape recorder in and set it up and, and audio taped the baptism. And I know this because I'm on the tape, age three. And uh, halfway through the baptism, there's a lot of noise. And it begins uh, as a sort of general thrutching sound. And then it moves up from that through to kerfuffle, I think escalating quickly to the level of great tumult. Uh, And then uh, it fades into the distance slowly until there's the sound of a sort of heavy oaken door being closed. And then the sound of a very well-smacked bottom and then complete silence. In the same way that a screaming child can either become happy or go away. Both of those things lead to peace for those left in the room. For believers in Christ Jesus who have a new ID, what we're being told is that we have been presented uh, before God as happy, as reconciled, as dwelling with him, and that the non-believers get to go away and be punished instead and leave us alone. And of all of the things that could bring about this peace, it is the blood of the cross that achieves it. There's a punishment for everybody. Everybody gets one. But for believers in Christ Jesus, the distinction is that the punishment is meted out on Christ instead of us. He takes it in our place instead. And just as God gives you a new identity in Christ Jesus, he takes on your old identity and all of the consequences of your old ID in sin and all that it deserves in death and punishment, and hell, and he takes it away. And that's why we are at peace. Now, here's the problem with all of this. We quite like having multiple IDs, don't we? We quite like the idea of having more than one identification. 
And my parents' friends, and this one's on the tape, so I won't give his name at this service. Uh, my, my parents had a friend who had a driver's license from the army. In fact, it was a, a tank license that he had. And he had his tank driver's license alongside his regular civilian car driver's license. And if this guy was ever pulled over by the police, he would show his license in, in sort of alternating fashion. Um, this was a regular occurrence, in fact. And so that the penalty points racked up in equal measure on these two licenses, he would show his tank license one week and his car license the next. And he kept this going until finally he totted up too many penalties and lost one of his licenses, and then he just carried on driving on the other one. And he did this for years. And he rather liked this ruse. He thought it was fun. Uh, we liked that sort of a story. In my family, we've got four people in the family. We have seven nationalities between the four of us. Uh, we have a green card as well. We have eight IDs for the four of us. And what we like to do is we like to travel into the UK on our red passports, and we like to travel into the US on our blue or green ones. And whichever direction we go, the customs official always says to us, Welcome home, sir. Quite like that. Maybe you're looking at me thinking, oh, That sounds great. That sounds really cool. Cut the line, welcome home. Sounds cool, but James Bond. You know, minus the robes. Maybe you're thinking it's a bit James Bond. Yeah, maybe some of you have been watching those Bourne supremacy movies with Jason Bourne. And you see the guy there with, with, you know, a bag with five or six different passports in it. And you think, that sounds really great, being a spy. I wish I could reinvent myself and be whoever I wanted to be wherever I go. You know, I wish I could be anyone I like. And Paul says to you, yeah, that does sound fun. But at some point, you have to pick a real ID. You have to pick one that you really are. We're not called to go undercover as Christians. In fact, our identity in Christ is so very strong that we are described, verse 22, as being reconciled. That means brought back in to where you really belong. You were once alienated. It's a word derived from the word foreign. You were once estranged and shut out from fellowship. You once belonged to another sovereign. You were not a citizen of this land. You were hostile in mind, he says, doing evil deeds once. You were traveling around the world with a bag of fake IDs, being whoever you wanted to be, wherever you went. Here is my work ID. Here is my home ID. Here is my marriage ID. Here is my affair ID. And here is my church ID. Pick one, will you? Paul says to you, who are you? Just pick an ID, will you? And if it's Christ Jesus, get rid of the fake IDs. He has now reconciled us, verse 22 says, in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Present. It means to proffer. It means to yield. It means to offer up. It's a word all to do with one thing, up. It means to be lifted up and shown it means irrespective of your old allegiances and your old IDs and your old sin and your old ruses and your old ways. God now sees you. Christ now presents you, lifts you up unblemished and perfect as one who belongs with him with a new ID. 
in uh, C.S. Lewis's very last Narnia book, The Last Battle, depicting creation and heaven and the recreation and heaven on earth in allegorical form. It says this, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land that I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. Come further in. Come further up. Let's pray. Lord God, it is absolutely universally true that our ID was in sin. It may also be true of many of us here that our ID is now in Christ Jesus. If we do not yet find our identity in Christ Jesus, would we move into his kingdom, become citizens of his land? Would we be so imbued with your Holy Spirit that we are transformed and remade into your likeness, Lord God. And if we know you, would we grow up in that likeness, perhaps ditch allegiances to other things? Perhaps there's something in our life that has us worried, or something that happened before or might happen soon. Would we be founded in you and on you, upon you? Would we have a very real confidence of what it means to be able to unlock your iPhone with our own face because it is your face now. Thank you for that new, real, real ID that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen.